Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Hey, this is Wyatt. Hey, before we get going, man, I got to just say thank you guys for everyone who continues to tune in every week, giving me and my guest in this show two hours of your life on a weekly basis is absolutely, man, it's so flattering. Yeah, that's kind of the only word I really have for it. I'm completely elated that, you know, the thousands of you guys that have just continued to help this show grow, continue to spread the word. I love it. Here I am, hat in hand, pandering. I was going through the stats this week and uh, really realized that of the thousands and thousands that tune in weekly for this show and listen to what we have to say, 58% of you guys listen across Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast has an amazing rating system. You just scroll to the bottom of the, the page, and there it is. You can leave five stars, and you can even type in a little review. Of that 58% of the thousands of listens, less than 1% have left reviews. Come on, guys. We're better than that. Come on, man. Those are rookie numbers. We need to pump them up. All right, guys. Hit pause. Hit the ratings at the bottom of the screen. All right? Enjoy. All right, all right, all right. We are back in the saddle again. The Talent Tank, another installment, a little deep dive here. As you clicked on today's episode, we've got Disco Derek West, Halen Ass Springfield, Missouri. Derek, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on, Wyatt. Man, I've known you, well, since 2007-ish, XRA. I tried to think back to exact memory. I think the first time racing against you was at Gray Rock, Alabama, xra and i came to the realization you're the guy to beat like back then like any chance like if everyone would have their their days that they were on top of the box or you know their game was on point but you were always on point i mean i think it was a lot of luck and determination and drive you know back then i was young i uh, didn't have any money and somehow managed to scrap some stuff together and kind of had something to prove i think and yeah, I did good. And I, you know, I was very fortunate to have done all that stuff and done as well as I did. And uh, it was good times. And you've been at it for like 18 years. You've been a quintessential competitor in off-road racing for you're coming up on two decades of it. That's nuts. I want to get into that. That is absolutely nuts though. That's a, that's a crazy bar that you've set. Yeah, I've been doing it a long time. Uh, which is which is good and bad at you know both, but uh, there's lots of other guys that were there before me that you know, I, mean, I remember watching Shannon. I think when I was probably in high school, looking in magazines of Pinky and some of these other guys have been doing it forever, and some of them aren't doing it anymore. But yeah, it's it's been a long time and it's fun, and I don't know how much longer I'll be able to do it, but I've I've enjoyed it, and you know some of the XRA days that you mentioned was you know that was. That was probably the highlight of the fun era. You know, when you go to a race and you show up and uh, you're meeting new people because we're all new, you know, that what that wasn't like we'd been doing it for 10 years at that point. And so that was uh, a lot of getting to know people over drinks and campfires. and Absolutely, right? So I introduced you as Disco Derek West. 
but I do not know why you're called disco. <laughs> What's the deal? It's a good question. So uh, I believe it was Lauren Healy that actually coined the term when we were at a ultra four race in Roush Creek, Pennsylvania. And we were, you know, this is still back where we used to go out and do some stuff. You know, I feel like we don't do a lot of this stuff anymore, but so there's a little pub around the corner from the park there and we all go down there and having a good time. And so we were doing dancing, they had the jukebox going and we were goofing around. And I think, uh, Lance Clifford and I somehow got into a worm race, which he annihilated me at. He actually went up a set of stairs doing the worm is crazy. But, uh, but anyway, so just goofing off and having a good time. And, you know, Lauren's maybe a little more straight lace when it comes to cutting loose. And so anyway, so he coined that and my wife didn't like it for the longest time, hated it be calling that. And I was like, you know what? I kind of like it. And so I embraced it. I even had a disco ball for a while and you know, it's, uh, it's always good to be known for something that's funny or, you know, associated with fun. And so I didn't mind it. Well, you can't give yourself your own nickname. That's kind of faux pas. I like it. Yeah. So is Lauren Healy nicknamed you disco. All right. I can see that. I've seen you dance. You're pretty, you got some pretty damn good moves. So yeah, that, that was probably back in the day. I'm, I'm a uh, old dad now. So I got the dad dance, I guess. <laughs> the dad bot dance. Hey, yeah. You're just being, being humble. So what's going on today? We've got some stay-at-home orders. We've still got some COVID going on. The country's kind of starting to open back up. Have you slowed down at all with your business? Have you slowed down with your day-to-day? Yeah, so it, you know, at first all hit and wasn't sure what was going to happen. You know, of course, it kind of came in slow. In fact, I even went and did a race right there in the beginning, you know, and things were starting to get a little weird and you're starting to think about germs on things. Like I remember on the way to the race, I was, went to a truck stop and that was the first time where it hit me. I'm going in and I'm paying with my credit card and I'm using it and I'm touching things and, you know, thinking about all that. But, um, but anyway, so we went to that race and then after that we came back and things started shutting down and, you know, so I, I do solar energy is what I do for a living. Then the phone just stopped ringing. People, Stop thinking about buying races started getting canceled. And yeah, so it definitely made me sit back and think, you know, what, what's going to happen for the rest of the year. And I've got this time now, what do I do with this time or in limbo of not doing all the things that I'm accustomed to doing. And you're a guy that doesn't sit around anyway. I know you're a pretty busy, busy body type person. So is it killing you? You going stir crazy? No. So when they started canceling races, so I was like, okay, so that that's out for a while. So, um, yes, I could go over and take a toothbrush and start going over my race car. And I was like, you know, I, I need to figure out how to make a living. You know, so I don't, I didn't know what all was going to happen with sponsorships and, you know, potential winnings, all this stuff that, you know, I normally have going on during a season. I don't know what's going to happen with that. I don't know if we're going to race the rest of the year, you know? So, you know, first everybody was going forward, thought they were going to have races and then it got held off. And I thought, you know, this, this could go on all summer. Um, anyway, so I turned around and kind of focused on my work stuff and was brainstorming and, and kind of stepping out of my normal, trying to find business and dig up some business, calling other companies, seeing if they needed help with, uh, some of their work. Uh, so I've got, I had an installation crew I was trying to keep busy. So I spent all day kind of doing that for a while. That'll happen. Are things starting to turn around a little bit or no? Yeah. So during this process, I ended up 
uh, laying off some of my workers, you know, I thought, well, that's the best thing for them. You know, we can only clean the shop so much because we, uh, I was working into it and then we finally caught up with, with our work. And you're probably familiar with this, but you know, we've got some lead time. So I've got some work that's lined up and, you know, I had about three weeks worth of stuff lined up. And, uh, once we ran out of that, you know, it was either I was going to pay my guys to clean my shop and do things or, um, you know, send them home, let them draw unemployment. And, and, you know, with all the bonuses that were going on, uh, they were going to come out pretty good. And, and so I had to talk with them and we weighed out the options and we all thought that was the best strategy. So I did that. And then, uh, during the process of basically turning over all these rocks, I, I started finding work, you know, and then I have going back trying to get my guys to come back which proved to be a little difficult right so one of my guys actually he went and found another job uh which was you know good on him he could have been lazy and sat at home and he just wasn't that type of person he found something else and uh, and i had some other guys that didn't necessarily want to come back to work just yet Uh, i think fear of you know the virus what's going on out there you know there's a lot of talk of people getting bad sick and dying and um you know, so we, we discussed it some more and we're not around people that much with what we do. So, so anyway, so I got some crew back, hired some new guys and, uh, we're back into the swing of things and I feel good moving forward. You know, I, I still don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if the, the bad part of this economy's hit us yet or not, but, um, so I've been back to work. I've been working on the race car. Uh, I hadn't even washed it from the, uh, I did an outlaw bouncer race. And so uh, me and one of my guys got it washed and spare chassis. So we've been scrubbing on the chassis, getting it all cleaned up. And I think I'm going to try to get it in shape and go out and riding around Memorial Day weekend and kind of test and tune on some things. And so hopefully life's getting back to normal. That is outstanding that you've, you know, not necessarily job creation, but you've been able to kind of retain jobs. I mean, certainly you had a little bit of turnover, a little swap out of uh, of human capital. That's that sucks, I'm sure, because those guys were trained. They were guys you could lean on. But, you know, that's volatility in the market, right? Yeah. No, and it was a good deal for both of us. He was driving an hour and a half to work, and, you know, it was, it was a move that we both needed to make because distance was a problem. And But like I said, I mean, it was it was great that – it's great to see some people want to do something and not just sit at home and get a paycheck. So, you know, because he, he could have sat at home, collected unemployment, made more than what he was making, and he didn't. So – outstanding I, I like to see that so i got two questions on moves two separate moves but they both you know come to your part of the world one first question how do you feel about if this happens and goes forward if we're back to it the ultra four nationals gets relocated to davis oklahoma that's almost your backyard i mean a couple hours down the road was that four hour drive for you three hour uh oh i'm gonna call it six probably six is it that far Oh yeah. Well, it's it's four and a half, I think, to Oklahoma City, and it always seems to take me five, and it's probably an hour and a half from Oklahoma City South, so I'm gonna call it six hours. That's fair, but, but for an ultra four race, that's almost your backyard at that point. Yeah, it's yeah. super close. Absolutely, six hours is super close for sure. So that's a good deal, right? For you, you excited about that? And I think you've had some success at Davis in the past. Yeah. So, so I'm super excited about it. I could care less about the distance. If this race was in Alaska, that's where I want to go. So Davis, Oklahoma is the best ultra four course, in my opinion. I mean, it's just, it's great. It's, it's kind of my jam. That's awesome. I, I love that you, you are so excited about that. I, I do think Davis is nice. I think it's, you know, location. 
I mean, well, I mean, it's location of Winnie Wood and uh, the zoo there with Joe Exotics, you know, that's awesome, right? Yeah, I'm <laughs> super upset that we didn't go visit that over the past times that we've been there. I, so, I, yeah, I looked it up and it's like five miles down the road. No, I know it's crazy how close it was. And I've not been, but it was funny hearing like, like Von Gitten. Von Gitten had gone over there and had hung out there and seen it. I don't know if he ate the the Walmart pizza or whatever it is they've got going, but that's, uh, I bet he's thinking, I bet he really thought back about that. The second move question I had for you was there's some online, uh, online rumorage going by around about, uh, a fellow we all know by the name of easy Rick Mooneyham considering a relocate from Lake Havasu city, Arizona to your neck of the woods. That's what I hear. I hear he's stopping by to see me in like August. <laughs> is that it? So I think I think they're coming up to kind of look at it. So you know, which based off of his social media, I'd say that's it's a good fit for him. And did you know each other very well from uh, like your days as like Nitto teammates? Oh, a little bit. So I'm trying to think what all what all we've done. So I've been I think I've hung around him a little bit when we vacationed in Havasu. We we're going to a race, uh, Glen Helen or something. Stopped in and visited with, with him there. Hot Springs, he came out and gave me a ride in his car. We did a few hot laps up uh, Horsepower Hill, and you know, he's a he's a pretty cool, good good guy. I, I I do like Rick. I just uh, it just seemed like way out of right field, but then at the same time, knowing him, everything's kind of out of right field. So <laughs> never- See, for me, it wasn't out of right field at all. To me, it made perfect sense. Well, there you go. You know, so I follow a lot of stuff on social media, and I never say a word because I'm the type of person that writes out, you know, this big long paragraph, and I go no, and I delete it all back out. But I follow that out, and people can't understand why he's doing it. And based off of what I see him post on social media with his beliefs and everything, it, it's just make and the business I'm in, I guess. So yeah, spot on. Yeah, so getting out in the away from things and. Um, producing some of your own things, you know, I just, uh, you know, so I don't know if you saw where Rick had, had, uh, looks like he was building some sort of, uh, weekend getaway, uh, out in the country. He was, he, yeah, they had a little mountain house deal where they were, yeah. you know, jackhammer and a jackhammer rock to put in a basement. And they, yeah. I think they got the basement in like cinder block, like pretty awesome. I mean, it looked like yeah. a bunker. I mean, it looked like yep. probably easy to do easier to do that in the, uh, Ozark mountains. Right. Yeah, so I don't know what happened there, but I assume he's wanting to do something similar out here, and there's people all over that, that uh, you know, have stuff like that around here. Yeah, those Ozark Mountains are, are, I mean, gorgeous. You know, having grown up in Kansas, we would come down to, you know, I remember going to Springfield all the time as a kid where you live, your hometown. I've uh, been to Branson a lot. And then we, I remember going uh, annually, we go canoeing down uh, a lot of the rivers there in southern missouri some of them end up you know like is it the white that ends up going into uh, arkansas i mean with like boy scouts and all that and it, it is god that part of the country is so gorgeous it's just straight beautiful oh, you're blessed to live there i mean that's yeah there's there's a lot of outdoorsy type of stuff to do canoeing we've got a ton of rivers right here and i didn't even realize it until i was somewhere else and i was like hey let's go out canoeing that'd be fun and there just really wasn't you know, a lot of rivers like that to do. And, you know, there's, you know, I don't know, 10 rivers maybe that you go out and get on and have access to fish and canoe. And uh, so there's a lot of outdoor stuff. And, you know, a lot of it I don't think of much because I live here. It is a nice area and I do enjoy it. Well, we talked about a bunch of other stuff, but 
people are dialed in, you know, that they, they turn this on. They want to listen to, uh, who Derek West is Derek. You hail out Springfield, Missouri. That's a pretty, pretty decent sized city in, uh, South central Missouri. You born and raised there. You live there now. Queen city of the Ozarks. I remember growing up like Bass Pro Shops. That was Bass Pro Shops headquarters. And I remember like the first, their first big store going there and just being a young kid, just, you know, jaw hanging on the ground, how awesome that place was. But it's also the headquarter of like O'Reilly's. That's pretty, well, we all know O'Reilly's. Frequent member of a uh, frequent flyer program there at O'Reilly's if you're in the racing business. Good place to be. It is. So, you know, growing up, you always think you want to move somewhere else and, grass is always greener right so you know with what we do for racing you know i've traveled all over the country been different places for you know vacation we go all around and i really enjoy going to places there's other beautiful parts of the country i like going to big cities you know they've got things to offer there that i don't have here you know we're uh 250,000 you know size area here but i always like coming back you know and there's there's really nothing that would take me away from here except for the cold winter. You know, I don't like, don't like the cold winter, you know, and, and there's other places that are worse, but that that's about it. But, uh, you know, also I feel without the winter, you know, we've got, you know, seasons here. So we've got a full four seasons of, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter. And I think that's, you know, what makes summertime so nice here is you go through a winter if you've got, you know, four months where it's terrible and you don't want to go outside and then spring comes back around and then you go out and you go to one of the, the rivers or, you know, whatever it might be out in nature, get out and drive around and really enjoy it. It makes you appreciate it more. So do your mom and dad still live there close local or? Yeah. So my dad lives, oh, probably two miles from me. Um, I'm on the Southwest side of town. And then um, my mother lives on the North side of town. So she's probably 30 minutes away. That's not bad. They, uh, and then you're married. And if anyone's been around ultra four and has met you and been at races, they've odds are they've met your wife, Ashley. She keeps the, the train on the track, so to speak. Right. Oh yeah. You know, and so there's, there's this thing with racing, you know, you, you've either got to, you know, do really good and kick butt or, or look good being bad. And so I, I always tell my wife that, and this is, you know, years ago. So I'd say, you know, you always need to look good and you stand around me or you stand around this car because I may not do very good and they may not remember me, but they'll remember you. And, and so you associate with me and we're good. And then y'all have a, a daughter in London. Yep. How, how old's London now? Uh, she's 13. So imperfect with having your dad two miles away and your mom still, you know, fairly close. They're pretty involved grandparents. Uh, yeah. So, um, London is very involved with activities. So, yeah, I mean, not now, I guess, because of all the well, stuff going on. But otherwise, she's uh, we were doing, you know, before everything got shut down, we were doing travel volleyball, you know, which is this is the first start of all this for me. So she's been doing some sports with school and some extracurricular stuff. But, uh, you know, the travel thing was, you know, just about every weekend and going to Kansas City and Wichita and Joplin, you know, traveling around, staying the night and practices then we've got her in um, boot camp and private lessons and you know so she's staying pretty busy doing that and then uh, and does that tear you up? like this is what happens to me my my son is on baseball kind of on that level and we will be at tournaments and it is the selfish thoughts but it's he's there 
you have to be there to watch him. He's your son. You're, or in this case, this is your daughter. You're in Wichita. You're watching her play volleyball. But in the back of your mind, you're going, man, I've got to get X, Y, and Z done at the shop or X, Y, and Z done on my race car because I've got that next weekend. So you're like, you're doing this like cost benefit analysis of being there, being happy, but also knowing that you're like, well, for every day I'm here, that's another two night, two hours later, I'm going to have to stay every night this week in the shop. That go through your head? Oh, yeah. And so it's a balance. And so when the season first started for her, I missed uh, quite a few games, to be honest. So because uh, it was in King and the Hammers. So I was gone to Colorado, to Jimmy's, building the car, brought it back here. So I'm spending 12, 15 hours a day. So I missed a few of her games. And I mean, I just there was no I couldn't put in extra time at that point. And this isn't a new thing. Again, you've been racing for so many years. This is, she's only known her father as dad, the racer, right? Right. My dad's a race car driver. Yeah. And so part of it I can justify, I guess, to myself is, you know, I may miss some of this time with her now, but we're going to make it up later. So I mentioned that, you know, here in Memorial weekend, we're going to go out and do something. Well, we're going to take our motorhome that we have for racing. And then we're going to put a race car and a side-by-side in that trailer. And, you know, she's going to get to go out and drive me around all weekend and the side-by-side and, you know, we'll spend a ton of time together, you know, with toys that are, that we have because of racing. So it, it kind of balances out that way. Well, I think you're teaching her something, you know, valuable, you know, work hard, play hard, you know, you work hard to get to this point to be able to enjoy life on this level and on these terms. And I know I've seen her running around in a side-by-side. She's a, there's a lot of freedom in that, right? 13 years old, that cuts you loose. You're good, right? Absolutely. You know, she's got the, uh, and, and I've dolled it up for her a little bit, you know, so I've got the, the whip lights and Bluetooth stereo so she can put on her music and I'm sure she feels pretty cool, you know, going around rocking out so no absolutely so were you into sports when you were a kid like her or yes i was but not not at the level that she is and and by that level what i mean is we didn't really have that level then right that level kind of didn't exist probably not no probably not not like that i mean who could afford to do that you know it's like it's you know crazy the amount of money that we spend traveling around and and fees and equipment and but there was, you know, so whatever camps they had, uh, we just didn't really know about it. You know, so when I was little, we weren't in the right circle, I guess. And, you know, so if there was a football camp or whatever, I wasn't at it. And so then when season came around, coaches were already familiar with kids were at the camps and I wasn't at the camp. And, you know, so I don't know, I, I did track and and football and soccer when I was real young. So anyway, so I learned what I missed out on and I saw how the coaches looked at those kids. And, you know, so I talked with, with actually my wife and said, okay, find out what camps are going on, where these kids need to be, where they're going to be in with the coaches. And I talked to my daughter, make sure you talk to the coach. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not always about talent, you know, even what I do, it's not about talent you know, get sponsors and all that sort of thing. It's being at the right place, the right time and, you know, making a name for yourself, being remembered, you know, whatever it may be. And so I try to teach that to her. And uh, so that's why we've got her involved in all this stuff. And she may like it. She may not. I don't know. We, we had her in piano because that, that was one of the other things as a kid that I wish my parents would have like made me 
do some sort of musical instruments. I think it, you know, now it'd be super cool. And I've thought that for a long time. So we, we had her doing piano for the longest time and then she just didn't want to do it. And I didn't force her to do it. But, but she got to experience it for a while, right? That's yeah, it's all did. about the experience. No, I think you're doing the right thing from a parent standpoint. I think you're doing exactly what so many of try to accomplish as a parent. You try to tilt the playing field as far in your child's favor as possible, right? You're trying to, I mean, nothing's fair out there. Nothing's level. There's no levelization unless you're playing like that. Was it the fair free play soccer where everybody gets a trophy? It's that's not the real world. So you're, you are, you're trying to give them always that leg up. And if it's that extra one-on-one coaching time, if that's that extra camp, it's, if it's that extra face time in front of the coaches, you're just always trying to get them that. I don't know another way to do it. Right. I think you're doing it right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's learning experience. You know, I, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, so a lot of what I do in life is, is based off of my experience when I was a child and, and you know, what I did wrong or didn't do. And I try to make sure that didn't happen with my daughter. So crush motorsports, that's your race team. Ashley, I'm going to, I'm, I love pumping her up for this. She basically runs that thing for you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You, you spin the wrenches. You're the, you're the pretty face, uh, with the helmet on. She runs everything else. That's how it worked in my house. Anyway, that's for sure. Yep. How did you come up with that name crush motorsports? So I almost have to go back to the beginning here. So, so I had a Jeep and it was the Jeep that I first started racing. It wasn't my first Jeep. It was actually my third it was the Jeep that Ashley was driving to school. She was going to college at uh, what is now Missouri State University. It was um, SMSU then. but uh, So she was daily driving that. And I took it down to a race in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And so we would actually drive it down there. So I'm, gosh, what am I? I guess I'm 23 maybe at this point, 22 or 23. And so I had a buddy that had a truck and a trailer. He's a little older than I am. And that's, you know, I didn't have any money. Um, and uh, it, this is just a Jeep. I, you know, I've been building Jeeps since I was 15 years old. So by the time I'm 23, I've kind of got some stuff fixed up and bought and sold and traded for some stuff. But I had it fixed up pretty nice. So we went down to Hot Springs and I raced it and I hit it on the rocker real hard. In fact, I think that, tr- that obstacle is called Rocker Knocker. I believe, or rocker, I think maybe it is rocker knocker, but anyway, uh, it hit on the rocker so hard that I couldn't close the door. And also the transfer case was slipping. So I was having to hold the in gear and I had to drive it home that way. So hot springs about five and a half hours. So I, I had a set of tires that my buddy would haul on his trailer and I'd switched the street tires out and put on some comp tires and go do that. But anyway, so on the way home, she said, that's it. We're getting me another car. So anyway, so I had it all beat up. So I ended up repainting it. So Ashley's dad is a, a painter. You know, so he fixes fixes autos is what he does. And so we painted it. And I'm trying to remember how I even came up with this color. But anyway, so the color that I came up with was called Orange Crush. So my Jeep, uh, we named that Jeep Crush. And it was basically named off the color or, you know, whatever. I guess I was young. I thought, you know, people have a crush on the Jeep or me or who knows what I was thinking back then. But um, so anyway, so that name kind of stuck. And, and I always 
for whatever reason, like to name things something, a business name and not use my name. And so I went with Crush Motorsports. With Ash- Ashley's hated that from day one. So now, you know, I don't know. You can see my shirt. So now she's branding me very hard with Derek West Racing. Yeah, Derek West Racing, number 20. Yeah, but that's Crush Motorsports. So that, that's where that came about. And I probably missed that in the complete intro of introducing you. And I apologize for that right now. But yeah, Derek, Derek is the 4,400 driver, number 20. Jimmy's 4x4 racing. Yeah, number 20. And, and I've got some stories about my number that well, could clear up some things probably. <laughs> Let's get there right after a couple of things here in the middle as we, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that when we uh, talk racing and racing. Let's talk work for a second. You mentioned earlier you're in the solar, you, you, well, one, you, uh, as we talked about what's going on with COVID and employees and work and all that, it's very clear you're an entrepreneur, you own your own business today, uh, solar energy services, you guys do rooftop solars, uh, residential, do you guys do some commercial? We do. Okay. I remember when you started this and thinking, wow, that's cool. He's kind of ahead of the game. I wonder how big that market is. And obviously it's blown up since then. So is that three, four years old now? Five years? So I've been in the solar business for 13 years, I believe. But I've had my own company for six or seven now. Okay. So yeah, so solar has, well, let me back up. So 13 years ago when I got into solar, which was with my stepfather, who'd been doing it for 20 it was, it was a little out there. People didn't know about it. And does that really work? And, you know, so it was a whole different feel than what it is now. And of course we're here in the Ozarks. So this is why I was saying I can relate to Rick Mooneyham with what he wants to do. So we do a whole lot of preparedness bunker type of places. People live off grid, have their own power, make their own food, you know, very self-sustaining. So I've got a lot of experience with that because that's back then that's what you did with solar and they have what's called uh, grid tide or net metering where you have solar panels that go to an inverter and then you use the utility grid to store your energy so you don't even have batteries when i first started doing solar you couldn't do that legally in the state of missouri so i learned you know a person would have to have batteries to store their energy uh, so i learned on doing that and that type of clientele was generally a, a survivalist or preparer, you know, so this is, you know, my stepfather went through the Y2K area where everybody thought that everything was going to crash because, you know, the computers were going to die or whatever. Then we had some ice storms here in 2008, which is our two, 2007. So I started doing this just slightly after that. Learned everything, installation, pricing systems and sales and uh, since I was a little kid, you know, I, I thought I would be my boss, you know, I thought I'd be my own boss and, you know, the, the time had came, you know, so finally the opportunity was here and I was in a place where I could do it. And I had Ashley, my wife, who knew how to do all the bookkeeping side of things and keep that straight. And I could focus on the, the business of, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts of things. And we've been doing it ever since. And that's still what we're doing. And uh, we've, you know, got a great partnership together doing it. And, um, you know, I think we appreciate each other more, you know, cause we lean on each other and we rely on each other. And, uh, I think it's been a good thing for us. And I think you guys are on the right side of it. I think rooftop solar 
is the future for residential. I think solar in general, I think, you know, I'm in the power business myself, uh, you know, from electricity power production, managed a, uh, a fleet of gas fires, a, a fleet of uh, geothermals. And then at the end of my career doing that, there was a lot of wind farms came on, some solar farms that we, uh, we managed output for. But we saw the penetration of rooftop solar into the daily grid. And with, like you said, net metering, net metering, I think, is the most genius thing for residential and commercial that could have ever happened. Before that, the utilities were against it. You know, they didn't want the rooftop guy, the, the local guy, you know, your, your survivalist or sustainability guy, just willy-nilly pushing electrons out to the grid off of their rooftop unit. Now the times have changed, you know, with, uh, you know, zero carbon footprint. Now you have the ability to, if you have your own rooftop solar, you get a net meter. And I guess I should, I'll let you do it. Uh, describe net metering. So net metering is the process where you would have an agreement between you and your utility provider. So uh, at that point, you become your own individual power station. And so, you know, I guess what rooftop solar looks like is you've got a neighborhood and let's say you've got maybe 10 houses. So those 10 houses on a nice sunny day are providing the power for their house. And then they're sending their excess electricity backwards through the meter into the grid system, which then is getting used by other houses instantaneously. But then you build credits into the meter. And so now you're able to you know, it's in a sense, store your energy out there in the grid. And then so at night when the sun is down, you now pull energy from the grid, which at that time instantaneously is coming from, you know, whatever your power source is, the coal plant or hydro or whatever. And your goal is to try to net out or, you know, have a zero bill. So you're, you're trying to produce your own energy. For you guys in Missouri, can it ever go positive where you could actually produce more than you consume in a month and get paid for it? Or is the best you can do zero? So, no, you can get a credit. Um, and I won't get too depth of how it works because it gets a little confusing. But, you know, basically, if you produce more than what you use, you're going to get a credit. Uh, and you can carry that over to the next month. That's in Missouri. Other, every state is different. So it's a state-by-state law. Uh, some states have where you can, you know, maybe if when you produce more than what you use, you're getting paid a certain rate, you know, but not not in Missouri. So here in Missouri, uh, so what I do is I take a person's utility usage and I break it down monthly. So I look at it for 12 months of the year and then I design a solar power system, you know, on their roof. You know, so I actually have a a software program where I go through satellite imagery and I design something on the roof and it takes into account the angle and where it's at and how it's pointing and all these factors. Uh, And I try to design something that closely matches what a person's usage was for the previous 12 months. Uh, You know, so that's, and then we're trying to get as close as we can as netting out, but generally on average, um, I'm about a 70 to 80% of their overall electrical usage is what I'm, what I'm shooting for. But that's amazing in and of itself, right? That's a massive reduction. Yeah. Yeah, it is. There's warranties. So you can do, you know, what I'm offering now is 25 year warranties on all the products. Um, you know, so it's a long-term investment. And so I've came up with, uh, these warranties to put in place to protect people, you know, cause you know, when you have your own power system, you're kind of, 
on the hook for maintaining it. So you get some long-term service agreements with these guys? Is well, so it's done through the manufacturers. Okay. Up front, I buy a extended warranty, you know, for the electronics, for the inverters. Uh, I'm a certified partner with my solar panels, so I'm able to offer 25-year warranty with them. And, you know, depending on what electric rates do and which utility company they're with, it's anywhere from a 7- to 15-year payback on a system that uh, you're going to have for 25 years because that's what it's warranted for. But you also, from a business standpoint, you're the guy who's going to get the call when there's something wrong with it, even outside. You're going to get the service call, right? You're the one who's going to go do the repairs. So there's service work available with this business, right? Correct. That's awesome. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but, with extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples, they've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back-ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website, so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you're a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. So I saw some stuff about, and this is what I know about you from the racing world and your ability to take what you're working on and make it better. Like you're not a, you're not a race car builder. Uh, you, your cars come from uh, Jimmy's four by four, but you've always refined them to be better and more efficient and fitting you for what you see working for you. And so I saw you doing that with, uh, your solar installs. You've adjusted them and you've ran the wiring a certain way and you've uh you know and, and it was something i'd never thought about was just the cabling that comes off the back of the solar the photovoltaic cell i saw that sound that right i don't know yeah photovoltaic yeah there you go the, the cabling that came off you know you made a point and it was something i i would have never thought of that 
most installers, maybe they just lay that cabling. It just lays there on the roof underneath the panels and you kind of never see it, but you're right. You know, you get snow or ice or leaves. Next thing you know, that stuff is creating something of a dam on the roof and catching stuff. And you have a, the video I saw, you had created a little system to clip that up. So it follows the, you know, it's just clean wiring. You know, we've all seen like the backside of like the Campbell's race dashes and how, how beautifully they're wired. This is the, the same similar instance. You were doing it to the PV cells. That was awesome. Yeah. And, and so that's a perfect analogy because that's what I think about is, you know, I want my, my work of what I do to be looked at in that light, which, you know, just like the Campbell's because so back in when I first started in this in 2008, So we were one of two or three solar companies around in the state. You know, there just wasn't hardly anybody. Now there is 30 solar companies within 15 miles of me. And they all slap stuff up. They're in a hurry. And that's just a big pet peeve of mine is to to do it right the first time and be proud of, of what you're doing. You know, this is, this is all stuff I've learned from racing and it's because with racing, you know, especially as we got into endurance, you know, my stuff started getting cleaned up. You know, when you built a car to do rock crawling or XRA, you could have problems because all you had to do was go for a few minutes at a time and then you had a break and you could fix something. Well, with endurance racing, you can't. Whatever you start with is what you end with, or, or you know, otherwise it kills you somewhere in the middle. So I learned that things need to be done right, and I mean, they need to be perfect. And so I that absolutely followed into my work ethic of just making things right, because that's I mean, that's how it should be. And if you want it to last, it, you know, it has to be. Yeah, it's your racing program has taken your quality control through the roof. That's obvious. Yeah, because I mean, I'll have to say is growing up, I was not uh, the OCD, it's got to be perfect, just right person. And I, so I have learned that and developed that trait specifically, uh, you know, through racing. Now, as we've seen racing of, evolve, oh, I specifically say ultra four racing, off-road racing, you know, we, all the way back to, you know, Rocks, Mo Rock, XRA. We'll talk about those guys here in a little bit in, in that era, but going from there to where we are at today in 4400, We've seen technology advance leaps and bounds like no other, but we've also seen that those technology advances happen in solar, correct? Have, has the technology in the panels that you were installing 13 years ago gotten immensely better over that time frame? I can read about it, but here I've got you here, you know, literally the horse's mouth. You can <laughs> talk to us directly about what you've seen as the, basically a solar subject, my expert. I didn't realize I was going to get that out of you, but uh, I'm so curious right now. So solar panels, I'm going to say no, there, there has not been quantum leaps. So have they gotten better? Yes. So solar panels are rated in efficiency. So a solar panel, an average solar panel is roughly 40 inches wide and, and 66 inches long. So when I first began doing this, we were around 200 watts on that size of a panel. Today, I'm installing 315 watts in the same physical size. So, I mean, yes, it's uh, a third better, uh, and that's came incrementally, though. So it was 200 watts. And then a few months later, it was a 205 and a 210 and a 215. You know, and what it has to do with is there's silicon wafers in the solar panels, and it has to do with how thin they can get those. 
And so the, you know, the technology keeps getting them thinner and thinner and thinner, which boosts the efficiency. You know, so that's just been a slow, gradual thing. The electronic side of things is where I feel like there's been more of a, a advance you know, of how they harvest power from the solar panels, ease of how to uh, what's called string solar panels together. So generally, when you have a solar panel system, you've got to hook them together somehow. And so you'd put, let's just say, 10 of them together in a series, which would give you, you know, 400 volts or something. And so the converter technology has allowed that to be much more flexible, which is easier on designers, which trickles all the way down to the customer. So the, the electronic side of things is where I feel the, the biggest jump in technology has been. So are those panels, the same panels you're putting on a residential rooftop, so are those kind of the same panels that we see out in a solar farm fields? Or is there a, a big difference between what you see out there and what you see with what you're doing? So the solar panels that I'm doing today, I would say are, are probably very similar technology to the first one that was made, which I think was like 1954, which is in the Smithsonian. So they look different, but it's the same same thing happening. It's the same process. So yes, it's the same thing at a solar field. You know, the only difference of a solar field is they may have some sort of racking system that moves or rotates. Oh, and follows the sun kind of like a sunflower. Yeah. But, okay. but other than that, it's, um, you know, there is no, all the technology that I'm aware of is all the same. So you've got, uh, you know, the light strikes, the, the solar panels, which, excites the electrons they start moving around inside there which creates energy well i hope everybody listening picks up a you know something they didn't expect to get out of this conversation today i always try to bring more than just the racing game and you just added a whole bunch of value to me as you just told me a bunch about solar that i had kind of really not a lot of information on it yeah and so the the solar panels themselves is what i know the least about probably you know i don't make solar panels you know so i buy them I don't know a whole lot about, you know, equipment and as far as how the process actually works, I know a little bit about it. You know, so my specialty is designing and putting everything together, you know, and making it all work, making a system out of the parts and pieces that are available. Well, in specking, right, you you have the capability to, you, to come in and you're not over specking somebody, getting them to spend a whole bunch of money they didn't need to, but then you're also not under specking them and where it would be an anemic system where they just wouldn't see the gains that they could be capable of uh, seeing. Right. Right. Yeah. And then so also, so along the way, um, oh, I guess it's been a year ago or so uh, I got my master's electrical license, you know, so I've, I've learned a lot and studied a lot and um, you know, there's, it, it is an evolving industry and it's changing all the time and, but it's fun. I like it and I enjoy what I do. Well, congratulations on uh, your master's. Hopefully, you know, uh, there's not a bunch of uh, Ultra 4 guys that start calling you going, hey, can you fly out here to Nevada and put in my solar? Because uh, they trust you, love you, know you. But at the same time, that'd also be pretty cool if you end up putting your guys to work on a traveling team, right? Yeah. No, and, and it, I, you'd be surprised. I get quite a few messages of people asking, you know, different things. And I'm, I'm all about helping people. So no problems there. Well, let's talk off-road and... Uh, and racing here let's kind of get into this thank you everyone for 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 listening to that i hopefully let me glean some nuggets on that and it helps somebody in their uh future renewables even if it's 10 years from now you think back and you're like 
You know, I listened to a podcast way back in 2020 about a guy talking about some rooftop solar. Let me, uh, let me dig that back up. That, that, that scratched an itch for me. 15 years old, Derek West, your dad, he trades for a Jeep. You said it was a quite a piece of shit, <laughs> big old POS, but you learned, uh, you started learning how to wrench on it. Your dad loved it. Is that about where the start was? Did the hook really get set there or did the hook get set later in life about, uh, off-roading, being outside, wrenching, being able to do what you do today as far as, uh, your race ops go? Yeah. So my dad worked a deal for this Jeep, which I think had a trade value of $800. Uh, it was a 76 CJ five and I'm not for sure if he was doing it for me or for him. My dad grew up with lots of Jeeps. So he had Willys and Renegades and, you know, the, the screaming Eagle on there, you know, Eagle on the hood and, you know, some, some pretty neat stuff uh, as far as what he had for, for vehicles and found this old CJ five that was rusted out and sitting. And yeah, so we traded on it and that's, and I had no aspirations to off road or do anything or um, didn't know what I was doing. And yeah, we had it and it needed work and we, we started on it. And then did you work on it with your dad? Does he teach you, teach you how to wrench? So many guys don't end up having uh, someone that teaches them how to wrench. They learn from somebody. Yeah, so I had learned quite a bit from my dad doing breaks and different things. I mean, he always had me working and doing things, which at the time I thought was horrible as a kid having to do some of the work that he's having me do. But now I look back and, you know, he was teaching me things. So first off, was it's it went to the body shop. So, um, you know, he, he wasn't a uh, painter or, you know, didn't know, wasn't a body guy uh, and had quite a bit of rust. The floorboards were rusted out. So took it down to a body guy and he had it for quite a while. Uh, but then he struck a deal with a guy that specialized in Jeeps. This was in a town that's oh, 20 minutes or so from Springfield. Basically, it needed some repairs and some different things. And of course, my dad's all about fixing something up, making it better and rotting it. Um, he, he was an old Corvette racer, so he was a drag racer. Uh, and, and he was pretty good, you know, won some state championships in the class he was in. And, and there it is. There's the racing, like the racing was in your blood. Well, and it is, you know, so yeah, in fact, I need to go dig out his trophies. He's got a bunch of trophies and won quite a bit of stuff. And I, and I have, I've always looked at that and it's like, well, you know, my dad was in the race and I was in the racing. Cause I, you know, I don't know how I got, what gave me the drive to do this. You know, I didn't grow up with with my dad racing, you know, he'd done it before I was around, but, um, but anyway, so he struck a deal with the guy to work on the Jeep. And, but as part of the deal, I had to go down there and he had to show me, teach me how to do that. You know, so that's where I learned how to pack bearings and just lots of different things that I had never done before. So there probably wasn't a discount. Your dad probably had to pay double. Uh, probably so. <laughs> so, uh, no, that, that was at, uh, John's four by four and more. It was John Lloyd. And I mean, he was pretty patient, you know, he was, um, you know, he ended up being a good, really lifelong friend and my first sponsor, you know, once I did get into racing, um, but that, that's where it all started. He was teaching me how to do this. And, um, I guess once I started, I wanted more. And next thing you know, we're, we're swapping axles and transmissions and motors and putting ARB lockers in and lifts. And and so you're pretty into trail riding by that point then, right? 
couple Jeep clubs. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the timeline of how that all went down. So I had a 76 CJ5 that had a paint job, lift kit with 33-inch tires, the 304 V8, which it did not come with. It had a 258. You know, we'd swap that in and put a four-speed transmission in it. And so that it was uh, it was a pretty good little pavement pounder. You know, so me and my buddies would cruise around town in it. And back then, there wasn't a lot of Jeeps cruising around like there are today. You know, today there is a Jeep everywhere. everywhere. I mean, how long was the rear drive shaft on that thing? 10 inches? Oh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, that was something else I'd learned because you had, you had to get the CV drive shaft because, um, you yep. know, the 33s and was, uh, it'd be yeah, almost vertical. Cool. It's an elevator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a few power shifts and threw that thing out of there, you know, had a little axle wrap. And so they, you know, just always, so then you learn, you figure out how to adapt to make that hold up. And no, that was fun. Cruise around town. Then we got to where we're going down to the lake. So there's lots of lakes around me. Uh, we'd go down there and go camping and trail ride around down there. And then of course I was trail riding with, with John Lloyd, you know, and they were doing real off-roading, you know, they weren't just trail road and they were going to obstacles and they knew where the obstacles were. And so that's what started getting me more and more into it. And so by the time I got into the Jeep club, I had actually got rid of that Jeep, which by the time I'd got rid of it, it had uh, or right before, I guess I should say I had Dana 44 axles that were sprung over out of a scout. So they were wider and but I bought a 93 Wrangler because my, my big holdback with my 76 CJ5 was that carburetor. And uh, as soon as you start doing something hard, that thing cut out, you know, out. get some gas in there. And so, so I got a 93 Wrangler just for the fuel injection. Um, longer wheelbase didn't hurt either, I guess. But And I, t- I swapped the axles. I took the axles out of that CJ5 and put them underneath the Wrangler. Now that I think about it, I don't remember what I put under the CJ5. I guess I got some stock axles or maybe I put those Wrangler ones. I don't even know. But, but so I did all this in my driveway of a house, which, you know, I'm sure the neighbors appreciated that. We've all been there. We've all done it, right? And then, uh, yeah, so I got involved with the, the Jeep Club. And the Jeep Club kind of formed because Jeep was having Camp Jeep in Branson. And so... Basically, they needed somebody to make all these trails and then guide the trails. And so we had this Jeep club that kind of formed over that. And a bunch of us got a pretty tight bond because we were out working every day, cutting trails. And then we did. We were the trail leaders for Camp Jeep and were involved with that. And you know, that was a fun experience. And then somewhere in there, those guys, a couple of them went, did a comp somewhere. Or they went to a comp and they came back and they told you they're like, dude, you could have won this or you could have done really well. And you're like, well, what is it? Yeah. And, and so I guess I kind of had a c- competitive nature or a drive to do things that other guys couldn't. So when we would go out on a, a club trail run, you know, there'd be a hard obstacle and some guys would go around it or whatever. Well, I was determined I was going to make this and I was going to make it the easiest. And, you know, so, so I kind of had that reputation. And so it was actually my co-driver Richie Keller and his brother Kyle Keller who I still associate with quite often in fact I talked to Kyle today you know and this is gosh 20 years ago man I love Richie Keller that guy is awesome I, and I, I even think I text you or something about or it was on the the list to talk about was I miss that guy that guy was 
kind of a party animal, but also just kind of cool, mellow, like things wouldn't get out of hand with Richie around. Yep. He'd laugh. Yeah. No, he liked to have a good time. He's a great guy. And yeah, so I mean, we've, we've done a ton of stuff together, but, uh, yeah. So Richie and his brother were down at this event. And I think the event they're at was at Bird's Adventure Center in Cass, Arkansas. They had, had a race. It may have been the mudstock race. I'm not for sure. But anyway, there's some sort of obstacle and none of the guys could even make it. And so they came back and told me this and, at the time I was racing ATV. So I had a, a Honda 400 EX and had some buddies I'd got into that with and was racing. But in the back of my mind, I was like, man, I see these guys wreck on the first corner all the time. I was like, as soon as I, I'm going to wreck, I'm going to break my arm and break my leg. And, you know, like I was telling you, I don't have any money. So as soon as that happens, now I can't work. And, you know, I bought a house. So I own a house and uh, I'm going to go bankrupt. You know, this is ridiculous and uh so i was like yeah mate what they're saying yeah maybe i could do that i could you know have a roll cage and seat belts and you know just it's a lot safer you know that's what i thought with age comes the cage right right so i i kind of started working towards that that goal and um so my jeep i'd been willing just had the factory cage it didn't have a, a full roll cage so so i bought a kit that was uh man was it eor or somebody made this kit it was you know you buy the kit and weld it in so i got that and you know it was the head rules for where i was going to race so i had to get all the stuff to meet the rules and so i did that went out and raced and won my first race that's awesome and that was my first taste of it and i was like man it's like that trail riding that's for the birds i was like this going fast and you know it's just just letting it all out and you know it's just uh it was just a different sensation and i, I was hooked so here we are 18 years later yeah I, i'm gonna actually probably flip this portion of the interview backwards i think you know the the right way to go about this is to really talk about what all you've done and accomplished and all that and go through that and i we're gonna do that but i want to ask you a question up front versus ask you a question at the end you've been a competitor for 18 years your name is always in the conversation even back in the xra days when we when i first got into off-road racing you were the guy like in the east coast if you ended up in a chance to be ahead of Derek west in some form or fashion you knew that Derek had had a bad day that was it like it wasn't you weren't going to straight up beat him typically it was he'd had a bad day on some level that was how you were going to be that's how we were going to get ahead of you that's how i remember it anyway so how do you do it? How have you continue? And I've asked Chris May the same conversation, the, the same question, because he's been able to stay involved and competitive for so many years, just day in, day out, race in, race out, month after month, after year after year. Is there ever burnout? Are you cyclical? How do you do it? What is the Derek West secret sauce on continuing to prep your car, load it in the box and go race? Yeah, man, that's, that's tough. So in the beginning, you know, I was younger, I was new at it, had a lot to prove maybe. And so I had a ton of drive and, you know, I wanted to succeed. And, and of course, in the beginning, you know, Richie and I are traveling around and, you know, so we're traveling all over the country. And, you know, like I keep saying, I didn't have any money. So I tell Richie, I was like, hey, if, if we don't win this next race, I mean, we can't afford to go to the other one. You know, so, I mean, there's that drive, you know, so there's drive A, I want to win. And then there's B, there's the drive that if we don't win, we're, we're done. You know, we can't, you know, the entry fees weren't always cheap, you know. And so for a young guy 
trying to maintain a race car and, you know, it's just a stock modified Jeep at that point in the beginning. But, you know, even as I got into the pro modified, you know, it was, so me, Richie and Kyle built my first pro modified that I was racing at XRA, you know, so I did it all on the cheap in John Lloyd's shop at John's four by four. Cause he wanted to help me, you know, so I, you know, I built this car ridiculously cheap, and I never even wanted to go in that class because I was scared of the cost of everything, scared of the cost of ownership of the buggy, scared of, you know, could I even do good? That fueled the drive. That's you know, awesome. So. Well, I mean, it's just where you harness it. Everyone harnesses motivation differently and they, they pull on motivation from different places. I think it's kind of the, I'm going to say it this way. Like when you're, when you're are racing, are you the hare or are you the, the hound, you know, or do you like being chased or do you like being the, and so when it comes to like motivation, we draw motivation from different ways and different places and different just all over. And yours is some, yeah, yours was, well, I wouldn't be able to do it again if I didn't do good this time. So that's my motivation. Do good. Now then I can have a shot at it again. I get another cut at it. Yeah. And so, you know, in the beginning I had so much drive and, you know, for so many different reasons, and, you know, I'd go out and, and do something completely unrelated to racing and I would get inspired. And, you know, I'd see somebody do good at whatever, whatever they do. Maybe it's a musician or whatever. And I said, man, that that dude is really good at, at what they do. That makes me want to be good at what I do. And so 18 years, 19 years later, whatever, uh, you know, it's difficult to keep that drive. You know, so you're doing the same. You got to prep this car and you got to clean it and scrub the bare chassis and all the stuff that's associated with it. And, you know, now it's, you got to do these press releases and make sure you don't forget any of your sponsors. And, you know, there's just all this stuff that goes along with this. It makes it not fun, right? It sucks the fun out of it to an extent. I'm not going to say it's, it's not fun. I guess maybe it's, it's difficult. It becomes work. You know, so now I took this thing that I loved and I turned it into a job. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest edition, Recovery Rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a custom splice solution. Now back to the show. So one of your questions, kind of your probes going into this, you know, who's someone that motivates you? 
and I left it blank. And I thought about that afterwards. And I was like, man, if I lost my, my drive, my motivation that bad that, you know, I don't even know what to put here. And so I've been thinking about it, thinking about it. So have you been watching the Michael Jordan? I have not. Documentary? I've been told to watch it. It is certainly queued up, has not happened. And I've been thinking about this because I didn't answer your question. And I've watched this man, Michael Jordan, go ups and downs. But the determination and the drive that he has, you know, is unreal, you know, I guess. And, you know, so again, and now I've, I've watched him do that. And, and so that kind of inspires me. And I think, you know, so here I am, an old, you know, washed up racer. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to find some stuff to get some drive and um, do better. I'm excited this year. Uh, I've got a new car. So, you know, every time I get out and race, I love it. And, you know, that's that's some drive. So the problem is because the real work's in the shop. So how do I keep myself motivated in the shop to keep the the car prepped and things moving along? And, you know, if I want to continue racing, I need to be making sponsor phone calls. And, you know, if I just sit on my hands and don't do that stuff, then, you know, I'm not I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not advancing. And, you know, I'm through. So. So I've been I've been thinking about that. So you've kind of sparked some inspiration in me to to think about different things. And, you know, as I figured I've I've kind of fallen off a little bit on my my drive and my motivation, like what I used to have. And well, no, I don't know if you've fallen off. I, I'm going to lay this on you. It's cyclical, right? You know, you're going to have some some low moments and high moments. You're going to be an overachiever, you know, sometimes an underachiever. And, and at the end, it equals out that equals out that you still be able to compete. I will tell you that the 2008, 2009 Derek, I remember racing at Hannibal, Missouri XRA event. And there was this huge cliff drop-off that weavers had put in the course. It, it was truly, if you do this, it's certainly going to make you faster. You're going to definitely finish the course faster, but it was like, I'm going to say it was a 20 foot drop and you, I don't know, maybe you were the third line, the third set of cars to go. It was pretty early in it. And you shot off of that drop, like a 20 foot drop. And all of us in line were just like, well, we're going off the drop. There wasn't a question then. It was like, nobody wanted to do it, but then you did it. And it was like, well, I have to do that now. Like there's just no, and I actually have a, well, it's not on my wall anymore. Is it? It might be on the wall at my shop, but some uh, photog there caught me coming off of that and basically landing on the nose and then your full wide open throttle trying to drive out from underneath the roll because yeah, the, the rear is trying to pass you on the top and you're trying to drive out from underneath it with the, the front. You set the bar in that competition by going off of that thing. And everyone was like, there was F-bombs dropped with your name on them. But that was the motivation. You set that bar. And I think today, I think you've, you're going to find the, those things that set that bar for you. Maybe it's Michael Jordan. I don't, I don't know. But I, I see right now people look at you and you're setting the bar really high to, you might not rec recognize or realize that you are the one setting the bar for so many people and they are just, you're motivating them. So when you can turn around and look at that, it's got to make you feel pretty good, right? Yeah. So uh, we did some incredible things back then. Somehow I managed to put together a buggy and still drove it like, I didn't care. I didn't care what I had invested. I wasn't thinking about, you know, scratching the paint, doing anything. It was all about winning and doing good. And, you know, that changes a little bit. I feel like for me, 
you know, maybe I'm just older, but you know, the cars get way more expensive and now I'm worried about tearing stuff up and having to fix it. You know, I think that's the problem is I know I have to fix it. I think I've tore stuff up enough times that I've had to fix it. So, cause there's another time at Hannibal at a We Rock event, there was this huge, crazy drop off. And I thought, you know, I don't even think I can make this, but I'm going to, I'm going to try. And, uh, I tore up so much stuff, you know, you got to cut the tubing out and patch stuff in. And, you know, part of that, I think hurts my drive to do things anymore is, you know, I guess I was young and dumb. And well, as you get older, you certainly do temper your actions with wisdom. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, that was, uh, I don't know. I, that was, uh, a good time for me, you know, the, the first XRA race that I went to, I won. And I was like, I thought I was crazy. Cause I, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I was going out there racing. I'd been racing in the stock modified class for four years or, you know, five years, whatever it was. And uh, jumped up the class and, you know, I thought, Oh, all these guys are gonna, you know, they're going to be so good and they're going to, you know, beat me or whatever. But, you know, it's just, same people, just different equipment. So, right. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been involved since the beginning. Again, I'm going to reiterate this the 18 years of compave off road racing. You were there for Cal Rocks. I had not read the word Mo Rock in a very, very, very long time. That brought back some flashbacks. Mo Rock, We Rock, then XRA. We're familiar with all these Dirt Riot, you know, uh, Big Rich's deal, which that's sad to see Dirt Riot go away. You know, that some grassroots ultra four racing in my book. Uh, I, I think I thought it was good for good for, uh, the, the system anyway. Then of course, ultra four and you're, you know, 4,400 driver there and have been since the beginning. And then lately you've been doing a outlaw off-road and that's effectively, uh, so it's kind of like XRA, right? But rock bouncing, it's courses uphills. It's a lot shorter drives. It, it's really pretty close to XRA. Yeah, they're even two course two courses side by side. But mud, though, it seems like every every time I see something with you from Outlaw, you've either won it or you're on the podium. But y'all are covered in mud. Do you love mud? It rains here. Yeah, <laughs> always. So it it's uh, there's no mud. It's just well. So I've you know I've got my cut tires on, so they are flat slinging it, and you know they'll generally run us across to. A small creek or something, it seems like, but um, but there's no, you know, it's just wet. It just is what it is. There's been dry ones too. Yeah. So Jimmy's the you, when I first uh, first you know came to know who Derek West was, you uh, you you had a Jimmy's buggy, and you've always had a Jimmy's car. Back in those early days, how did you end up in a Jimmy's car? How did you end up talking to Randy Rod, developing a relationship with that guy? I mean, even today, I know you guys vacation together, you know, go skiing together and whatnot. What was the point way back then in the mid two thousands that you ended up in a Jimmy's car to begin with? And then about that relationship developing all the way through today. So I was doing uh, we rock stock modified with my Jeep, same Jeep, the orange crust Jeep. And, uh, you know, said it was on revision 10 or whatever. And, um, I just felt like the class was going nowhere. So I liked the class and I thought, you know, this is the stock modified driver's class should be the manufacturer's class, but nobody's paying any attention. So, and back then the pro modified was the, the main class. 
basically I just got frustrated enough that I was ready to, to jump a class, which scared me because financially I didn't know how I could do it. So that pushed me to figure out how to do this. So I made a call to Jimmy's four by four. And of course, you know, what's the first thing you do when you call Jimmy's four by four, you say, is Jimmy there? <laughs> so of course, Randy Rod is Jimmy. And, uh, you know, of course he never skips a beat. Yep. This, yep. And, uh, you got him. Yep. You got him. And to this day, I still call him Jimmy Sims. It's, uh, uh, but anyway, so he, um, we spoke, he kind of did Googled me, I guess, and searched me out a little bit. And, you know, I just caught him at the right time where he was trying to grow his business and things worked. So, you know, he helped me with uh, a roller chassis, you know, so I got uh, a buggy from him, brought it home. And of course, you know, so they were doing XRA stuff and they were, you know, Farmington and Moab and all that area. So there, yeah, there was a lot of cars in that kind of era that were, Jimmy's car. I mean, he had like Kim Sears had hers. Brian Shirley was in one. I believe like Mike McClurd built one at one point. Did Rusty Bray have a Jimmy's car at one point? Uh, no, no. Yeah. It just, it seemed like there was a, a lot more than that, but then they multiplied. They were getting magazine coverage. You know, back then he had the air graphics guide, um, doing the airbrushing, That's you right. know, on the cars. And so they had this, you know, this different look and, you know, so they really stood out and that's, uh, it was just something new and the tubing was just different. The cars looked, you know, just mean, you know, like they're just sitting there just, you know, ready to rip. And, and he was cranking them out of a, you know, that the back side of that, the, the back garage, the back shop out of, uh, his dad's transmission shop there in Cortez. Yep. Now, now, I mean, now look where Randy is. He's got that really nice, you know, set up out there kind of Northwest of Cortez, you know, out there beautiful view no matter which way you look 360 degrees beautiful view from the shop versus the old the old shop being on like right on the main drag with a couple containers shipping containers out back that he'd stash uh buggies in yep come along and you know what it really wasn't that many years ago that's 10 years ago eight nine years ago yep. i don't know how long they've been in the new building but it doesn't seem it seems like a long time but then when i think about it i remember stopping at the old shop in 2010 or 2011 somewhere in there anyway yeah, so when I was I was just out there, oh November I guess of last year, you know, for this new car that I just built, and um, they had a parade in town, and I walked over and I walked by that old shop, and you know, thought about the memories that I've had there and the time that I spent in that shop, and it's it's still there, it looks the same. Oh yeah, I bet right. Yeah, man. So uh, Randy and you, you guys have worked together for so many years. I mean, that's like having a conversation with like Lauren Healy about Randy or having a conversation with like Nick Nelson about Randy. It seems like you guys that end up in a Jimmy's car at one point, they're always in one for life. Like that's how the customer service, the Jimmy's, well, let's talk about joining the Jimmy's army. I mean, you end up access to ready built race program, ready built race support right from day one when you sign the dotted line to have one built fair. Absolutely. As part of, you know, what I do with Randy and how Randy's helped me uh, through the years. So they developed the Jimmy's army. And so I uh, always felt that I was part of, you know, somebody that should help facilitate that, you know, so I would always try to go out of my way to guys that were part of the Jimmy's army to, you know, Hey, if you need something, you know, especially these guys who go out and buy, they're new, they bought a car, you know, and I'm here, I want to help, you know, they're helping 
Jimmy's who's helping me. And, you know, so it was kind of this, this big team thing. And yeah, it's, that was fun to be a part of. And then they always, you know, Randy always gets like a, that extra big tent or used to, I, I, yeah, definitely. Um, the extra big tent out at KOH where it's like 10 teams racing out of the big tent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, and I want to say there's even more than 10 teams in there at the time. I mean, it was crazy. The first time he got that thing. So this huge tent and it's heated, air conditioned. That, that was nuts. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It was, I mean, it made a statement. When I first met you, you were a BFG guy, but Randy converted you. For those that don't know, because I didn't know this until, you know, maybe four or five years ago, but Randy Rod was the guy who really ended up with Nitto and introducing Nitto to Rock Sports and then pushing the Nitto brand in Rock Sports. And then, you know, well, we know where it is today and how heavily involved they are in uh, Ultra 4. But that's how, that was the connection, how you ended up being a, a Nitto driver. Uh, it is, you know, so without Randy and Jimmy's, you know, I definitely wouldn't have had that relationship. Uh, so that spawned for me based off of that. But Randy had basically hounded and stayed on top of the Nitto guy for oh, two or three years before ever getting, you know, Nitto to come over and come on board and start getting involved. So I don't know that they'd ever been involved in our sport at all without him. Yeah, I, I believe that. I, th- I think that's a fair statement. I think that's a, as we say, as I like to say, an inflection point for off-road motorsports. Inflection point right there was Randy staying on Nitto and getting them to the table because that's really changed. That's allowed KOH to grow. It's allowed a lot of guys to build a race that weren't able to really race before. You know, BFG had, was pulling back their program and Nitto stepped in at just the right time to put tires on. I mean, it, putting race tires on off-road race cars, it's, a, it's an expensive business. That's a lo- very large chunk of your budget goes to tires. And when you can get those guys, the, the our tire manufacturers involved in, uh, in supporting the racers on that level, it all of a sudden makes – racing doesn't make economic sense. I don't want to say that. Uh, but I will say it makes it uh, palatable, more palatable maybe. Yeah, and the timing couldn't have been more perfect. So, you know, like you're saying, I had been on BFG – for years leading up to that. And that was about the time they were pulling out. And so Nitto came in and filled the void. Uh, and if they hadn't, I'd probably been done long ago. Yeah. Right. So KOH happens, right? We're XRA in it. We're living it up. You know, there's nothing, nothing cooler in the world than XRA. You know, it's uh, seven minutes of racing, six weeks of shop time. Then this race happens out West. We all know about 2007, did you go to the 2008 race or was 2009 your first year? So 2009 was my first time. And what a first time it was. Now, did you break down in outer limits? Is that where you had your first issue? Well, sort of. Okay. <laughs> the way you say that, there must be more. Well. The desert kicked all of our asses. I mean. If you can call water in your fuel broke down, then I was broke down. I There you go. That's right. And, uh, you filled up in California. Was that California gas? Yeah, I did. And that was back when we were still running. I learned a hard lesson there. I, I, you know, and I don't know what happened, but I, I got several hundred gallons there in at California. And I assume I sucked some water in the tank somehow. And I don't know if it's just because the sheer volume that I was pumping at once that water sucked over into it. I don't know. 
you know, some of my guys wondered if somebody didn't put water in our fuel tanks, you know, at night or something, but I, I never felt it was that, but, uh, but I don't know. So, uh, yeah, we got, went to the first pit, which, you know, at the time I had a 10 gallon fuel cell, I think, cause that was my XRA We Rock car. So, you know, I didn't have any gas and, uh, was doing great. Got gas, took off, started having problems and wouldn't run. And I checked all kinds of stuff. I think changed computers, tested all this stuff and finally figured out there was gas. You know, and that was, that was a day later that I got that figured out. So my day that day, we had had an electrical gremlin that hit us pretty early on. It kept killing my fans. And then we spent some time in the main pit. But then when we got back out on course, I remember coming around these rocks in outer limits and seeing you and saying to Kelly Kaiser, holy crap, that's Derek. Derek's sitting. Like we knew that you were having a bad day if we were going to be passing you. And uh, yeah, man, that's terrible. But you came back in 2010, a year later, and you you were nearly a new king. At You nearly had it. It was you, uh, Lauren, and was that Easy Rick Mooneyham or was it Brad Lovell? Yep. All well, so Easy Rick was the first physical finisher, but he was fourth. It was Lauren, Brad Lovell, me, and then Easy Rick that year. And y'all came, I mean, when I say you guys came in bumper to bumper, you guys were nose to tail across the finish line within 20 feet of each other as you guys motored in. It was, it was a race right to the finish. Yeah, it was close. And... Out of that, I mean, what what did you end up finishing there? You got third? I got third, yeah. Third. But there were some lessons learned there, and this is some lessons that have actually been coming up a lot lately. And Will Gentile brought this up on social media, and it's the, what is the race course? At the Hammers, what is the race course? Is it the 50 foot of center line, or is it staying in the rocks when you're uh, in the canyons? And what is the spirit of the course what is the spirit of the rule i believe in 2010 maybe we're naive we believe the spirit of the the race course was when you're in the canyons you're running the rocks you're running the obstacles fair right so that's uh, a hard thing to figure out and today it's not that it's really not that it's the you're going to take the burning course even if the burning course is above and bifurcating around an obstacle Full bypass. Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. No question. If there is a faster line that does not have rocks in it, I want that one. So how do you feel about that? I don't have a problem with it at all. You know, racing is racing. And as long as we all know, it's not a problem. So in 2010, I was, I was very green. So there's a couple things. I didn't know the courses at all. Dave Cole, um, you know, of ultra four had a driver's meeting and said, I will have people, in the rocks, you stay in the rocks. And if you get out of the rocks, I'm going to have them write your number down and you're going to get, you know, whatever the penalty was. And, and I think that was maybe before they had maybe done this, you know, 50 foot rule or, but anyway, I just, I wasn't familiar with it. I didn't know it. And, you know, there was times where we would get on the burned in course that I would take now, you know, so there's kind of like a sand road right beside the rocks um, in a lot of places. And, you know, I see somebody sitting on the side of the hill and I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's one of those people watching, isn't it? And so I would, we backed up and got back in the rocks and drove the rocks. You know, now I know that is not what you do. 
you know, unless, you know, this past year they had a meeting and there were some virtual checkpoints that you had to hit in the rocks and they told you exactly where it was. And, you know, it was straight, I knew what to do. I knew where I had to be in the rocks and I knew where I could be out of the rocks. You know, he even told us it was, uh, I think it was at Spooner's. Uh, no, it's not Spooner's. It was uh, maybe it's Outer Limits. Anyway, there's this huge bypass that people were taking in the last few years. And, and I had never been on it until this year because they said, that's okay. You can do it the second lap and not the third. You have to go around it. You know, so if, you, if a person knows that, then it's all equal. But, it, you know, it's just, it just has to be spelled out, you know, exactly what it is. And then it's fair. So do you think the race needs to be longer then? No, um, I think it's plenty long. Uh, you know, there's the bypasses, you know, so if you take all the bypasses, your time isn't, it's not like hours or anything, you know, but it's faster, you know, so you can potentially pick up, you know, 15, 20 minutes by these little bypasses here and there. And that's exactly what I was driving at. People that have made a big deal out of the bypasses versus not the bypasses, the bypasses versus stand the rocks. I don't think it's a real time issue. And like you said, there you go. From you, your opinion is maybe 20 minutes. I don't think it's a time issue. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of it's not even hard, difficult stuff. It's just, you're, you're going to gain 30 seconds right here. And so you, you take that and you know, if the next guy can too, then, you know, that's fine. In my opinion. What do you think the impact to the car is over, say, that 20 minutes that you're saving? Do you think the the impact to the car itself is saving the car, or do you think it's just nuisance rocks that weren't going to be a problem? Well, some of it's nuisance, and some of it's maybe a little different. You know, so there's a couple places where there's, you know, what I'd call some pinch rocks, so it gets real tight. So you know, a narrower car can just drive right through it. But some of the wider guys, um, you know, especially some of the IFS cars have gotten wide, um, you know, that's, it's potentially a problem for them. And so A, if they go into it too fast, uh, you can cut a tire, do something, or, um, you know, you get stuck in it, bind up a little bit. So, you know, there's certainly probably some areas where you could bypass and save fatigue on the car. I mean, so it's a little bit of both, but we've all got the opportunities, you know, so I can bypass it and so can the next guy. Right. So, you know, again, as long as it's fair for everybody, it's, you know, you know, I don't know that matters. If you want, if you want to do all the stuff, all they have to do is mandate it. I think the problem becomes policing it. And so I think that's where they came out this year and said, these are virtual checkpoints. You have to be here. The rest is fair game because we can't police it. I agree with you. Not trying to, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, Derek, when it comes to uh, the competition side of it. But at the same time, there, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, have things to say or opinions to say about it. And I kind of want to you know, spread the wealth of knowledge on that. Like, what is the true impact from the eyes of the competitor, from the mind of the competitor that's having to do with that? And I fully agree with you. Make the rules the same for Derek as it is for racers one through racer 100. That same rules you follow the same portion of course, whatever, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I like the comp when, when we talk about it from an endurance level, the races continue. King of the Hammers has continued to grown and got longer and longer and longer. And when I look at it getting longer and longer and longer, is it getting longer because it's getting easier or is it getting longer to make it harder? And it feels like it's getting longer because it's gotten easier. And so it is a ways to an end, right? The, the end being, 
when you send the cars out at 8 a.m., you don't want your winter to come back at noon. You want them to come back at 2 or 3 or 4 in the afternoon. And the way to accomplish that is if they're taking bypasses, if they're speeding up in that portion of the course, then we need to make the course longer to get them to return then. Because who's going to want to brag about, you know, being a winner over a four-hour race? No, but, I mean, it, it's when your bragging right is where the – toughest hardest one day hardcore race in the world but your winners come back in four hours you can't have that right yeah and so what how long was the course this year 200 and something 240 245 so i'm thinking uh one of the longer ones or possibly the longest is this year the longest i think so Uh, Um, so maybe three years ago but uh, so this year's course i thought was super easy, not difficult, you know, was, and I don't know if it was the course, you know, the course changes a little bit, or is it me as a driver getting more used to these big rocks and having to nego- negotiate them, the vehicles being able to take it more so you can go over to, you know, the faster terrain or the train faster. I mean, but I, you know, this year, as far as that difficulty, you know, I didn't find myself getting stuck a lot or that something was, you know, just didn't seem difficult for some reason. And I, and I noticed Randy Slauson made that exact same comment. And I thought, you know, that's, I'd agree with him. Well, that's certainly been floated. The same thing that we've said about, you know, about technology and technology advances, the technology that's advanced in ultra four off-road 4,400 endurance off-road racing has jumped light years in the last 10 years. So the cars that we are racing in 2007, 2008, and 2009 versus what we can race today, yeah, you can cover a lot more ground, a lot more comfortably, and and they're surviving. The survival rate of that vehicle is substantially more reliable. It is. So I still struggle with the reliability some, I think. You know, this year I was just plagued with problems, which, you know, is maybe just new car stuff or just, you know, I don't know. That's... That's the tough thing. You know, a guy can win a race every time if he can just keep his car together, right? <laughs> yeah, you get to the finish line, right? To, first, to What is it? Uh, to win, you must first finish. Right? Uh, you know, every racer's story starts with, well, I was winning until. Absolutely. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine. This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the Talent Tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Branding hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Branding my ideas, and they made them a reality. 
Between the Brennick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brennick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rear oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small. Their amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brennick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy pre-runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannock axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannock, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannockMotorsports.com. Brannock is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. So you did, you you built a new car this year, but I want to jump back for a second and how you dealt with some serious adversity in your program. And tell me if this year is wrong, but I want to say it was 2011. You had a car burned down and you lost it. Uh, 2010. It was 2010. So 2010, this car was brand new and... Uh, I debuted it at the hammers. So finished it on the lake bed and kind of buttoned it up really the night before the race. So I got third place at that race and lost by a minute and a half. So second place was 28 seconds ahead of me. And, you know, the first place was a minute and a half ahead basically. And I had to stop well, three different times. So I had a fuel injector rail come off on the trail. So I got up and was too anxious, I guess, because I stopped anyway. So I, I pinched an O-ring on the fuel injector rail, putting it back together. So I drove with gas leaking to a pit where Stan and the Brannock guys tried to fix it. Couldn't get it fixed. Uh, so I drove it all the way into main pit, still leaking gas. And we had to change the, we just changed the whole fuel injector out. That was probably my my race to win if I was um, looking out over all the years. And and uh, so that that was the tough one for me. But so then moving forward, I let Rusty Bray borrow that car to go do a, an e-course race, which was a qualifier for King of the Hammers. And so the car caught fire while he had it. I don't know what happened. You know, I had those those issues earlier in the year with the, you know, some of those fuel injector O-ring problems. I don't think it was related to that. I think what what had happened was the pressure regulator was threaded into the fuel rail. So some of the cheap fuel rails have a pipe fitting on them. You know, it's what they use for a seal instead of an O-ring boss. Gotcha. So and but anyway, so that fuel pressure regulator was right there, and I think it had just vibrated loose. Plus that thing's under pressure because it's a pipe seal, so it's you know pressure thread seal and i think it cracked there which sprayed fuel which got on the manifold which started the fire and you're not putting that thing out yep 
how did you handle that? How did you bounce back from that? I mean, that's, that takes the wind from the sails. Oh, it did, but it didn't, you know? So at that point, and if you'd watched the Michael Jordan show, you'd understand this. <laughs> so at that point I was, I was almost relieved that I got a break, you know, cause it was just, you know, it's all this going and trying to figure this out and, you know, the money part of it and, uh, just all of it, you know, just all of it's a lot, it's just a lot all the time year round, you know, it's, and it's a job. And, um, that gave me the first break that I'd had from this job in about eight years. So, I mean, it sucked, don't get me wrong, but at, at but at the same time, if my obligations for the rest of the year, you know, I, it was, I got a little bit of a breather and time to regroup and Randy, you know, I took the car back out to Jimmy's and Randy bailed me out. You know, he, he, got me all fixed back up and, you know, we put something together again and I was ready to go again for the next year. You haven't missed a King of the Hammer since 2009. I have not. That's a pretty solid stout standing just to be there every single year in February. We know where Derry Quest is. He's on the lake bed. So before we start talking about 2020 in your new car, I'm going to go into a couple things. Just, we talked about, you know, earlier, like your KOH lessons learned, you know, you know, you take the easy line, all that. What are some, what's some advice you give for some new guys getting in that decide they want to get a new car? Let's say they end up calling Randy and they, they, they buy a car from, from Jimmy's. And what are some advice you give to those guys? Like GPS, like being lost, like pacing the middle game. What's the stuff that works for Derek that Derek thinks about that's kind of like that base load of knowledge you need to be able to take the green flag out there. Oh, that's a tough one because there's there's so much to it. Oh, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah, I feel like I can't help a new guy. I mean, there's just so I don't even you know where am I going to start, and if I start talking, it's too much. Um, you know, so you've you've really got to go in and and learn, and then as you start to understand, now ask me questions. How can I help, and how do you overcome this? Because you know, it's it's you know, I can tell you something how to fix a problem, but if you haven't ever had that problem, you're not going to remember it when you have the problem because it didn't make sense to you at the time, if that makes sense. No, that is a very cool and interesting way to look at it. I hadn't thought about it from that angle, but I think you're spot on. We all learn different ways, but that's, uh, yeah, I think you're right for some. You know, and there's, and I've, I've had so many problems you know, and figure it out the fix. And, uh, it's, you know, mentally, I don't even know where to start. You know, if I was trying to help you, you know, so the biggest thing that where I'm always short is, you know, get some people, you know, get, you need 10, 15 people out there helping you. You know, that's the problem. I go out there and I've got two guys with me and, you know, I know enough people have been around long enough that I can find some help, some people to help me, but you know, that's the thing is you get so spread out in all these pits in different places. And that, that's probably the one thing is get good help. Lots of people help you work in the pits, help you work on the car, you know, surround yourself with a good crew. And when we talk about like really good crew, it is, yeah, I've heard this. I'm going to use Lauren as example. Lauren has, you know, Lauren's at the top of the game. He has trouble keeping people, you know, at races, the Campbell's same way. It'll just be the family at, at events. Uh, no one's ever going to turn down help. But what I really find cool about off-road and ultra four racing is the teaming up. You certainly have other Jimmy's guys you can team up with, but you've teamed up with other teams, you know, like about splashing gas or this or that or parts or whatever. That's always been really cool. What I've really found really fascinating about racing in off-road endurance is 
the ease by which teams will pair up. Yeah. And, you know, so from the beginning of since I've been involved with this, I've just always heard about how great our sport is, how willing we are to help each other in comparison to other motorsports, which I have not been involved with other motorsports. Um, you know, so to me, it's just you, you help people. And if it's your competitor, you help him and he's going to owe you one because at some point you're going to need help. Right. All right. We're going to jump into, well, I'm going to hit two little things. So 2019, you have a new car in 2020, and that's where I want, want to kind of go into how your 2020 race went here. But 2019, you had a very successful 2019. You won at Davis at Crossbar. And then at AOP, were you on the pole there? But I didn't, I, I don't actually remember how your race went. Like, I, is that right? Yeah. So I got the pole, and I guess I'm going to have to think about how my race went. That's funny. I, I want to say we got third. Did we get third, second? I can't remember that one. That's when you've raced for so long. Yeah, they, they all kind of blend together. But congratulations on your win at, uh, at Crossbar. I mean, you know you still have it. What made you decide to jump out of the old car and build a new one to be ready for this year's KOH? What was the, the catalyst? Oh, it was just time. So I had kind of been starting on things and had inspiration to build this car the year before. And so I'd been working with Jimmy's again. And so this car has a leading arm and there was just a lot of time involved in CAD and trying to get well the correct window to get it built and was between me and Randy and getting all my parts. And so the car actually came a year later than what I had originally anticipated. Now is this kind of set up the similar to like, uh, like Cades and, uh, and like David Hartman's with, the engine pushed back and down a little bit and you gain a whole bunch of up travel in the front. Is it similar design or how dissimilar is it from those cars? So it's the, it's the same chassis. Okay. So my chassis is what, what's called a 48 P which is, um, you know, so it's, it's basically for the 4,800 class. So I guess technically I've got the first 4,400 P cause that's what I call mine's a 44 P, uh, but it is, it's the same as same chassis as theirs. So, um, my le- front leading arms are a little different and, you know, I'm sure there's a handful of other different things, but yes, it's the, it's the same design. So, uh, when I first started talking with this car about it to Randy, you know, I said, there's, there's really two things that I want to change that I want different about the, the car that I had you know, previous, you know, uh, I said, I'd like to have more up travel. You know, it seems like if I hit a real big G out or, you know, some sort of a large event in the front, it'll bottom out a little easier than what I want. Uh, and I want the ability to corner better. So the leading arm gives me more up travel. So it took care of that. And then they did a whole suspension geometry change and I've got a car that corners pedals. So they, they nailed it. That's excellent that you get out what you plan to get out and uh, what you set out to get out. I mean, I think so. So I've only drove the car twice. Well, yeah, but fair enough. All right. <laughs> COVID's kind of screwed us here. So what went down at KOH with that car? Any any issue shock tuning or were you guys able to, you know, I know like Cade and David Hartman on their 4,800 cars, they were able to basically share their dope sheets for uh, shock setups. Were you able to draw on any of that or did you just have to go build it all straight out of the box and, uh, and go put, put a bunch of tune time on? Yeah. So I've got, um, dual shocks and they're single. So, you know, different deal. I, I don't even know who they tune with. So I didn't have any, 
part of that at all. So I work with Radflow for my shocks and I, I have ever since I've been in my Jimmy's car. So, and I also work with Phil Lacardi. So Phil has a good relationship with Glenn, the owner of Radflow and talked with him and kind of helped custom put the tubes dialed in for where he wanted. Uh, and then I went and tuned with Phil. But anyway, I mean, I'm blown away with how well this car does and the potential that it has. And uh, the limiting factor of this car is me, you know, so it's, it's pretty absurd how I feel driving this car. So there would be a, you know, a G out and, you know, they sneak up on you and all of a sudden you see them and you're going faster than what you should be. And so your reaction is to tense up, which is terrible. It's the worst thing you can do. So I find myself, you know, tensing up going like this. And then I realized nothing happened and the car just took it. And even so I did a, I did the King of the Hammers and then I did an outlaw race and the same thing. And I've got to learn how to drive the car faster. The car is faster than what I can drive it. I got to figure it out. So I guess there's a reason why someone gave him the nickname shock Jesus. Yeah. So he's uh, no, he's a great dude to work with super straightforward and nice guy. And yeah, I, I mean, he's, he knows his stuff and, I'm pretty happy. And of course, you know, there's always more, you know, I, so where am I at? Am I at 80% or 90% or 70%? You know, I don't know. There's always more in a shock. You know, I don't feel like you ever get to the best it can be. And as you get more comfortable in the car and you push the car harder and faster then the tune needs to change. Yep. Yeah. That's awesome. So 2020 KOH brand new car. You've tuned it. What was the downside? What happened? So I'll start with qualifying. So I had probably the worst qualifying I've ever had. And I thought like, I felt like I did okay. It was the crazy thing. So after my run, I didn't feel like I sucked, but you know, wasn't, I didn't do very good. <laughs> so I was like, what are these guys way faster? Or did, was I not very good? You know, I mean, the competition is getting better. I mean, it's all the time. It's better, better, better. So I, I don't even remember where I started, but I want to feel like I was 30th or something, you know, which, which is a fine starting spot. I mean, really it's a perfect starting spot, but you know, I've been as high as third, I think at King of the Hammers before. And, you know, and I win polls here and there. I mean, not all the time, but you know, so I can be fast and, but I wasn't there and I, I didn't know what was going on there. But anyway, so we started off and, you know, I didn't do a ton of pre-running. I pretty well ran the first lap and that was about it. Um, we were working on stuff nonstop. I remember it was just, you know, new car stuff. And this, this race they have is smack dab in the middle of the off season. I feel like it's the worst time to ever have a race. You can't prepare for it. And of course, you know, I'd probably say that no matter when they had it, but no, that's right. So, you know, we're trying to figure out a new car there and it's tough. You know, you're trying to, you got problems to sneak up on you and, got to figure it out. And, you know, we made it to race day and took off and did lap one and, you know, trying to figure out the car, you know, like I said, how fast can I drive this thing? And it's like, man, I push it a little harder and it just takes it and just goes. And, you know, I don't really know what the limit is. And, but we had a great first lap. So I started 30th. Who, who was your co-driver this year? Uh, David Fox. David Fox. That's David what I Fox, thought. Yeah. He's a good yeah, dude. He's been my co-driver. Yeah. For the past several years. And, uh, he's a perfect fit. You know, he used to be a driver himself, so he's, you know, still got an ultra four car. And so he knows what it takes. He understands what it's like being in the driver's seat and, you know, knows what I'm going through. I think, you know, and he's, you know, it's worked out well. Yeah. The, the mental game, right. 
all the mental game. Yep. 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 But so we, we came in lap one, uh, 15th maybe. So I think we picked up 15 spots, you know, probably a lot of it to attrition, but you know, I didn't really get passed by a lot of guys. I think I had two IFS cars past me, which I didn't think was too bad for as long as the first lap was. So, uh, but after that, we just started having problems, just little stuff. We'd had to pull over and fix it and, you know, rock getting into the brake line and just different stuff. Um, you know, it was just a tough race. And after a while, I just started getting wore out from getting out and working on it. And so and then finally just had a, had a problem. That was it. That was done. That, that was the time to throw in the towel. Yeah. I mean, there's, we can talk about, yeah, the different difference between, you know, the green, what happens between the green flag and the checker flag, but there's also what happens between the left ear and the right ear. That's uh, they're both two races, you know, one's mechanical and one's totally mental and mechanical took you out. But yeah, you're right. All those issues weigh in on that, that, that mental side of you. That's suboptimal. Um, the one thing that I notice absolutely about Derek West out there and what you have going, Derek, and you know, certainly the, the crush motorsports and your wife trying to move your branding to the Derek West 20. And that's your, your Instagram is Derek West 20 is for years though. This isn't a new thing for years. Your social media leveraging is so on point in front of people. You're really good about doing videos. You're really good about talking people through what you're going through that day or what you're going through that moment. Like, simple stuff like, Hey, here we are. King of the hammers is going on next week here. I'm in my shop in Missouri. Everything's the car's buttoned up. We got, you know, new graphics on new wrap. And then you roll up the garage door and you're like, and this is what we're dealing with. We're rolling out of here. This is a, uh, there's three inches of snow and there's ice everywhere. It's not much warmer in California, but we're going Or when you go to like, uh, any of the outlaw races and you walk the course and you'll videotape, you'll video it and you'll load it to social media. You've been really, really good about that. Has anyone coached you on that? Or has that just been mental marketing on your side or has it been, what is it? No, it's just, um, showing what I do, you know, so I've, I've got an obligation. Uh, there's a lot of people to help me and I want to, you know, show here, here's what I'm out doing and I'm using your product. And, you know, and then I started doing the videos. Um, and I really like to do it when I'm at the rock bouncer events, because I feel like a lot of my following is ultra four type of people. And, you know, they know what I do and they know what happens there, but they've maybe never been to a rock bouncer event and they've never seen, you know, these cars in person possibly. So yeah, I just kind of started doing that and I guess it's maybe easier for me to throw up a video and say, all right, let's, you know, let's do this three, two, one, do a video. Otherwise it's some sort of photo and they got to come up with some catchy caption phrase of what's there going is. on. And yeah, no, there it is. I think that's it. I mean, I think that's the example. Well, I, I didn't know, but now that as you speak through it, yeah, you're right. Probably video is much easier than having to go put commentary and build content and everything around it. Yeah. You've been doing a really good job. I don't know if anyone's told you that, but your social media has always been really on point. And Shannon Welch asked a few weeks ago during COVID about what drivers content during this has impressed people. And the, there was one that uh, jumped out to me and I was the one I blurted out on social media was uh, the ultra four racing accounts, the, the Facebook and the Instagram, they really been cranking out good stuff, but you as well, you have had just consistent, really cool, good stuff. And uh, thank you. I mean, that's helps pass time helps, uh, but also you do a lot of stuff that's very informative, not necessarily 
how to's, but like a off-road racing Derek West at this event four one one. I think you're killing it. Yeah, and you know, I think I could be a whole lot better at it, but um, you know, to be honest, I don't like talking on the camera a bunch and you know so i have to force myself to do that i don't you know it's you know i don't know who likes to do that specifically i know some people do but it's you know it's just that's part of my job you know i'm out i'm a sponsored driver and i need to show what i'm doing and and i know there's people out there that follow um you know the funny thing is i make those videos and i don't get a whole lot of comments but it's amazing that the people that i see in person people that i know and they're like hey I, i really like it when you're at these events and and so that's what kept me doing it and started making me do it more was the the in-person one-on-ones where they tell me that they watch those videos and they like it and, you know, keep doing it and they can watch what I'm doing. And so it's like, okay, I guess, I guess people like this. I, I like them. Try not to feel like I'm out tooting my horn or. No, I think you're just being genuine. Whatever. I think yeah. you're being you and, and genuine. I don't think it's uh, anything. Well, I don't think it's anything more than that, but I think they're really good. Just, just genuine. Hey, here's what's up and here's what's going on at this event. And here's where I am right now. And, uh, follow along. I mean, well, I mean, that's a lot of what is the spectator side is and the, is the living vicariously through your exploits with your uh, visor down. Right. Right. So, uh, we've definitely talked about endurance racing and we kind of brought up a little bit of outlaw stuff, uh, the rock bouncing stuff, but race to riches two of the last three years at that, I'm going to call that a rock bouncer event. Is that a fair thing to call that? It's kind of a everything, but I'm going to call it a a rock bouncer event. You've won that thing. Oh, it's, it's full on rock bouncer event. Yeah. I feel like there's this negative connotation between rock bouncers and like hillbillies or something. And I don't want to connect that. So I'm always kind of leery about what to call a rock bouncer event or whatnot. I don't want people to think like, you know, I, I have some stereotype against him. I, I love Timmy Cameron. Tim Cameron's awesome. I love all the work that Cole Shirley does and puts in. When James Cantrell was, uh, took his ultra four car and did some rock bouncing, I thought that was pretty awesome. I think Miller had had some success down there. He went to a couple of events. I don't know if what events they were, but uh, I remember Easy Rick actually doing one, him liking it. But you, and I get it, you're in southern Missouri, short drives, shorter drives than going to the East coast to uh, an off-road event out there. And you're having a lot of success in your 4,400 car rock bouncing, killing it. Have you been well, uh, well received? I think it's getting better. So, you know, that's the problem with uh, me have doing it for a long time and having a lot of sponsors, you know, so when I first started doing it, I think they think I'm from California or something. And, coming out here and somebody else works on my car and I just get in and drive it. And, you know, it's not the, not the same feel as like what XRA was, you know, we all meet each other, but it's, you know, I've been around long enough now. I feel like things are better, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, they're like XRA courses. Sometimes they get pretty extreme. Uh, but other than that, it's, you know, it's a, it's a woods racing course with, um, you know, some technical stuff in it and, I'm good at that. You know, it's not, uh, you know, so it's not even like I just showed up and it's my first time. I mean, that's what I started doing, you know, so I, it's, uh, so I enjoy it. I love it. Fully in your wheelhouse, completely there. It is. So, you know, and, and their competition is getting better. Uh, you know, so over the, the past few years that I've been doing this, I'm watching those guys get better and better and faster and faster. 
Well, that was funny talking to Josh Blyler about this at one point where Miller had showed up to a line mountain race and, you know, tune shocks and all that. And then Blyler and his dad, you know, they just banging it out on whatever the shock was that came out of the box, how it was, and they hadn't tuned anything. And they saw how his, he did his car handled. They went and talked to Hey, uh, how do you make your car, you know, handle so good? You know, and Eric's like, oh, so the shock tune. Well, that's, we've seen the, the, the bouncers they have started to tune for certain things. And some of that ultra four technology that we've seen trickle down to trophy trucks as trickling down to the rock bouncers. Yeah. So, I mean, look at, uh, you know, who we were just talking about Phil Accardi, um, you know, so he's made some trips out and tuned on these guys and, you know, so they, they work it out where they do tune sessions and get guys lined up and he'll go out there and tune on them. And yeah, so they realized that, shocks is where it's at and you're trying to you know it's just obstacles you're trying to get over big rocks and if you got a shock that'll absorb it you can do it better absolutely so what's uh what's next for Derek? you've been a guy that's taking your car a 4400 car it can in theory can do everything it can't do every it can't do any single one thing great but it can rock crawl it can bounce at this point is there any other genres you've thought about showing up at you know where it's not far drives is it take your car to uh, an SCCA event. I mean, I don't know what, what it is. You've always been one of those guys that's always progressively looking at different ways to enjoy competition. What's next? Yeah, I don't know. You know, especially this year, things are up in the air. So immediate next is, so I'm kind of going back down to where it all started, which is uh, Birds Adventure Center in Cass, Arkansas. So that's where I'm going for Memorial Day weekend just to relax and enjoy it and, and trail ride and yeah, do some trail riding. So let London rip it on a side by side. Yep. Yep. Um, no, other than that, uh, I needed to start taking a look at the schedules, you know, so Crandon, it's got an ultra four race there. So I've raced there a couple of times, you know, so I'm thinking pretty hard about doing that one. That's not a sanctioned event. I guess part of the season It's just kind of a standalone deal yeah i'd heard a rumor that they were talking about crandon still happening but without crowds i'd heard they were talking about doing it without crowds that seems well i guess that would be just like a normal off-road race but still (laughs) 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 i I can't imagine crandon without crowds yeah but so you know looking this year what i need to need to do is um you know put my head down put the work in get my car right and show up to the races that I'm good at, you know, some of the rock bouncing events, you know, you talked about the, the race getting moved to Oklahoma crossbar, you know, be ready for that stuff. And, uh, I've got a car that's, you know, extremely capable. I mean, it's just, man, the thing's just killer. And I, I just need to get it dialed in and me get dialed in with it and, you know, see what I can do. See if I can win some stuff. I have no doubt on that one, Derek. I tell you what, thank you again for accepting my, uh, invite to be on the talent tank, sit down and tell your story that do you justice. Were we able to cover everything you wanted to cover? Anything left lingering out there, low hanging fruit that I missed? No, I guess the only thing would be my number. Yeah. So let, yeah, we did. You brought, you, you dropped that in there. There's a story about your number 20. What is it? So when I first started racing, I was number 20. So my, my orange crush Jeep was number 20. So when I was doing We Rock, they mandated that we have a three-digit number. So I went to 200. So I just added a zero onto it. Okay. 
And so I was stayed 200 because that was my number. Well, then when we went to ultra four, they mandated you have a 4,400 number because of the best in the desert. So I was like, okay, I'll do 4,420. So everybody's like, Hey, does that mean four for 420? You know, thinking I had some sort of innuendo going on there with, with, uh, 420. 420, but no, so that was it. So when I, when I built my last car, uh, we were no longer needing the 4,400 designation. So I went back to 20. So I'm just kind of back to where it started. I love it. I love you circled back. I know that there's been guys that have all circled back to that, you know, that have dropped the 4,400. Well, one, it just became a, a, a fight to, I mean, there's only 99 of them, right? Nobody's going to have the first one. So you've got 4401 through 4499. I remember 4499 seemed, seemed like Jesse Haynes. That was his number. I'm sure there's some others in there that I can kind of remember, but um, there's just more cars than that. There's more cars than and when it was only really needed for a best in the desert series. Yeah. I think it was smart when you start seeing guys go back and drop away from being, I guess, aligned with having to have a 4,400 number, even though they're a 4,400 class. Anyway, I digress. Thank you for coming on, man. That was awesome. Yeah. I had a good time with yeah, you. I appreciate it. All right. On that note, we're out. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make as usual. I really have to thank my, uh, my three partners on this custom splice. Those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at a uh, custom splice.com. Give them a call machining. Oh my gosh. Branding machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If if you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They're a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company, they're in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this uh this venture and this project and everything give them give them a call for your suspension needs these guys do magic with springs and then the parent company mass motorsports engines man they have uh they have engines unlocked hand built lots of horsepower they're your guys thanks guys we'll catch you next week thank you for listening and taking a dive into the talent tank please like and subscribe on instagram at the talent tank or our website thetalenttank.com.